from the island in the desert, it's Life Punctuated at Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes from Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers exclaim themselves during our season inspired by punctuation marks. Held on December 26, 2017 at Jump, we ended the year with stories focused on the period from our featured storytellers, Deborah Ferguson, Tri Robinson, and Reham Artie. Now for stories with a real point. It's story time. Please welcome Deborah Ferguson. A period is a punctuation mark, but also it represents a period of time or a length of time. And on this very week, 22 years ago, I made a decision that uh, changed my life and my family's life. Uh, At the time, I was 34 years old and I was an attorney in Chicago. I was working at the U.S. Attorney's Office there in the Civil Division. I really loved my work representing the United States and federal court, interesting cases. I had a great boss, wonderful colleagues. Um, and it was a very uh, stable career job, Most very little turnover. Most people stayed until retirement. The, um, in my personal life, I was married. I had two beautiful little boys who were two and four years old. And we lived in a red brick house in a historic neighborhood. Uh, I used to take the train downtown every day to go to work. So things were um, feeling very good and prosperous. And it wasn't a foregone conclusion that it would have been that way. Uh, I grew up in a very different neighborhood on the southwest side of Chicago, uh, very blue collar. And um, most of the, uh, the men were things like mechanics and truck drivers, and most the, the women stayed at home, were uh, uh, homemakers. Went to public schools, pretty mediocre public schools at that. Um, and uh, it was, and I didn't know any lawyers, had never met a lawyer. Uh, as a... Um, as a kid, I describe, describe myself maybe kind of quirky. Um, a good example would be I was nine years old and I wrote an essay uh, which was what I would do if I were president. I apparently was not impressed with Richard Nixon. And I, uh, in the essay, you know, I had ideas about improving race relations and uh, wanted better controls on pollution. So my teacher found this uh, interesting, uh, amused perhaps, and she sent it into the Chicago Tribune. Well, the Tribune published the essay and came out with a photographer and took a picture of me looking very serious with my chin on my, which was easy for me to do, looking serious. Uh, But what I was really passionate about was the outdoors. I loved the idea of the West and read all the books I could get my hands on that had to do with pioneers and homesteading. Um, Just loved to be outdoors, would play outdoors in what I called my prairies and my woods. And actually, it was just a new subdivision and they hadn't built on all the lots. So I, I play uh, you know, out in those, on those lots and uh, make forts. I, uh, I thought I had excellent hunting skills. I would pretend <laughs> to do that as well. Uh, I would make red Kool-Aid, which I would provide to my friends and tell them it was bear blood. I don't, I don't know. Um, but 
it was uh, just something that I uh, really felt um, uh, passionate about, the whole idea of the West, although I'd never been there. And that really didn't leave. And even two decades later, over two decades, when I was practicing as an attorney in downtown Chicago, I, I still had great longing for that and for some wildness, um, the sense of some adventure and possibilities, opportunities that the West would provide. I missed very much. Uh, being outside, I craved it. And I think especially with having two little boys, I wanted so much for them to have some of that that I never uh, had the opportunity for. And I thought a lot about it, and I thought, you know, I just don't want just two weeks of the year where I get to go out um, and be in the mountains and see the rivers and uh, the woods, and the rest of my life uh, isn't like that. It seemed like, it would be a huge mistake to wake up at 65 and say, you know, I lived my life like it was a dress rehearsal, and I missed all that, that I feel so passionate about. So I started to think, yeah, that's all well and good, but what are you, what are you really going to do about it? And um, you've got a great career here. But I thought, if I could only do the same work and maybe do it out west. So it was like a long shot. It was more than a long shot. It was a huge, horrendously long shot. But I thought, my lunch hours, I'm going to start calling Western offices and just see if uh, there are any openings or openings uh, that might be coming up, because the positions were few and far between. And I called the Boise uh, US Attorney's Office, and the civil chief said to me, I'm sorry, didn't you see the notice? Uh, we said no phone inquiries. And I said, notice? I, no, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, well, that's rather remarkable, because we posted a notice for a position in the Civil Division just a few hours ago, first one in eight years. And I said, whoa. I said, OK, I'm not a rule breaker. I didn't know. I, <laughs> I'm getting off the phone right away and um, checking this out. So I, I look at the notice, and not only is it a position out in Boise, Idaho, in the civil division, but it, they want someone who will specialize in environmental federal cases. So I'm like, yes, I want this so bad. So I applied immediately. But then I, when I followed up on my application, I'd learned over 200 other attorneys were also feeling this way. And I figured with absolutely no contacts in Idaho, I'd never been to Idaho, I knew no one, that you know my chances of getting this position were about zero. So I didn't kind of put it out of my mind. but. I did get an interview. There, they selected five people to interview, but it was very particular in that it was for a, in two weeks on a Wednesday in the middle of the week. And I looked at that and I thought, oh no, I have a trial that whole week in Chicago that I'm a lead counsel on. It was like a money laundering asset forfeiture trial. And there is no way you can just get the trial moved because you've got something better you want to do. So it, you know, I thought, well, OK, OK, if I can't move it, I'm just not going to give up that easily. I asked my opposing counsel and chambers if we could have a brief pretrial meeting uh, in the court's chambers. They, that, was, that was granted. I went in, and I thought, I'm just going to lay it out and say, I want to go to Boise. I just want one day. I know it's in the middle. I know that's crazy. But the judge, just coincidentally, had been in Idaho for the first time a few months before fishing. And he said, yeah, it's awesome out there. OK. <laughs> and, and I mean, this, I, 
he's a federal district, he can do whatever he wants, you know? So he said, if you can finish getting your evidence in by Tuesday, I will recess the trial and uh, for one day. 24 hours, you have the opportunity to go out there. But we're gonna start the trial back and defense is gonna put on their case on Thursday morning, whether you're here or not. So I said, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. So sure enough, we, we trial begins, that all finishes up. I have a tiny little carry-on bag and counsel table under the table. And as soon as we're done for the day, he recesses and I grab my little briefcase and uh, I race out to the subway to get out to Chicago here, to get on a plane, to fly out here. Arrive around midnight. It's my very first time on Idaho soil. I am so excited. And I'm looking in the dark out the back of the cab on Vista Avenue. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I wonder where the mountains are. I wonder, I can't really, I can't tell. I can't tell. And. The next day, the interview goes on. It, it goes, I think, really well. It was a little dicey when you're asking about like prior trips to Idaho. I had to kind of fudge that, you know, uh, and um, stay enthusiastic. Try not to be actually lying uh, with the Department of Justice, but you know, um, enthusiastic. And uh, got back to the airport, got in the plane, and was really happy, but just exhausted too. Fell asleep. Woke up, it is the captain informing everyone that there's a huge blizzard and we will not land in Chicago. And I just was like, ugh, you know, that, that feeling of like, no, this is very bad. We land in a city, I don't even know what city. I think I blacked it out, you know, it didn't, because it didn't matter. I just, you know, it didn't, and they shuttled us all to uh, a little airport motel and I laid fully dressed in my Brooks Brothers suit, in my you know, uh, wool navy skirt, you know, pencil skirt, uh, blazer, <laughs> pearls, black, you know, I had navy pumps on, and I just laid there spread eagle, trying to minimize the wrinkling. And I, I had been in the clothes since Tuesday morning, and the phone was by my head, so I would be sure to hear it, and uh, it rang, and the plane was going to attempt, uh, you know, uh, to fly into Chicago again. Raced there, got on the plane, landed eight in the morning. So, I I ran as as, as fast as I could in a pencil skirt and a pair of pumps, um, you know, trucking through the airport to get to the subway to get to the federal building. Got there. And true to his word, the trial did start without me, uh, but it was only really a few minutes, and my opposing counsel was actually really kind and just kept doing like background information on his witness, waiting for me to arrive. So that was good. And um, then Christmas came, and uh, the next week, was working all week, working on New Year's Day, and got home, was making dinner, and the phone rang, and it was uh, Betty Richardson, who was the U.S. attorney then, and she said, "Deborah, how do you want? How do you feel about coming to Idaho?" And I said, "Oh my God, yes, yes." And she said, "Wonderful, that's terrific. Can you be here in two weeks?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I will. I will try. Yes." So, with that phone call, uh, the period of my life in Chicago ended and my period of being an Idahoan began. Thank you. Please welcome Tri Robinson. 
Well, normally, when a, when a person dies and he's buried, it's like a period on the end of his human natural life. But I want to tell you a story tonight about one case where that wasn't so. I, I look around and I, I realize there's some from my generation. You remember the 60s? We had a, we had a phrase in the 60s or an expression, I guess. We, we would say that something was a, a happening. You know, it's like there was an event of some kind, and then we would say that's, that's a real happening. A happening was something that, that just kind of spontaneously happened, so something that, where someone had a, an idea, and they put action to that idea, but beyond any, any uh, of their wildest dreams, it would just turn into something uh, much, much bigger. And it became a happening. It was like, a, like a, someone forming a, a snowball and throwing it down a hill, and it, it, it gains speed, and it gains size as it picks up more snow as it, as it goes. And this, in this, as it grows with, with synergy and creativity, and, and, and it creates a life of its own, and it, and it builds, and it, and it gets faster and bigger, and, and it, it becomes life itself. And ultimately, leaves indelible memory. It's not often in a person's life you get to experience times like that. But I did once when I was uh, in my early 20s. I was 23, I think. Uh, I was in my second year of public education teaching secondary school in a, in a small community in Southern California in the high desert called Lancaster. It was my second year and because my first year I had exercised the ability to teach a little bit outside the box, I was assigned this special class of mentally gifted minor children, which basically meant that they were smart, but they weren't very motivated. In fact, so unmotivated they wouldn't read textbooks and they, they really became kind of difficult for some teachers. So because I was young and foolish, they gave this class to me and told me that the one requirement was that I would teach them quantitatively differentiated curriculum, which basically meant I had to teach the curriculum, but I had to do it differently than any way that they might get it in a normal public setting, public education setting. Well, the first unit in, in this class was uh, the history of the American West, and I had done my master's work in the, in the American West and, and the history, and and one thing I knew was a lot of stories about the American West. Everybody loves a story. That's why we're here tonight. And so I thought, well, if I can't get them to read, maybe I could get them to sit and listen to stories. And so I started with the, the Lewis and Clark expedition, and I used my chalkboard with colored chalk on, as a backdrop to my story with the mountain ranges, the Rocky Mountains, the Sierra Nevadas, the, the valleys and the river systems. And I began just telling stories. It took me two weeks. I stretched Lewis and Clark out for two weeks. And they passed the test perfectly. And so I told more stories. I told stories of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company and the stories of the Fremont's expedition and Kit Carson and, and uh, Jedediah Smith. And I told story after story as, until I was starting to run out of stories. And I remembered one story. A story that was really, uh, I didn't think anybody else had probably ever heard. It was about a, a mountain man who came late to the Rocky Mountains. His name was John Johnston. 
after the Civil War. He was a trapper and a guide and, and spent a lot of time around the Yellowstone Plateau until, as legend has it, the Crow Indians killed his wife and child. John uh, took on like a, a one-man vendetta against the Crow Nation. And, and as the story goes, he killed many of Crow warriors. And the Crows believed that Johnson was actually eating the livers of these warriors. And he gained the name Liver-Eating Johnson, which followed him all of his life. So I told this story, and it was a pretty fascinating story. But the end of the story brought a reaction to my students I wasn't expecting, because at the end of his life, he became a town constable of Red Lodge, Montana, just north of Cody, Wyoming, just across the border. But having trapped through the, the, you know, the Yellowstone Plateau, wading through icy rivers, sleeping in snowbanks, he, he, by the time he was in his early 70s, he uh, had arthritis or rheumatism and decided because he had fought in the war that he could go to Southern California to the, uh, the Veterans Hospital that was just newly established in what today is Santa Monica, California. And he arrived there January 1st, 1900 and died that day and was buried at Salt Hill Cemetery, a great veteran cemetery which his grave later was set 100 yards from the, what became the Santa Monica Freeway. Well, when my students heard this, they were outraged. They thought this was a total injustice because he always wanted to remain in the Rocky Mountains that he loved so much. And I'd never seen a reaction like that out of them. And I, I went home that night and I told my wife, Nancy, I said, I, my class, I finally got a reaction out of them. They were actually passionate about something. And, and uh, they, were, they were outraged at the fact that he was buried by the Santa Monica Freeway. She casually said, well, if they don't like it, tell them to move him. Well, I, I knew that was an impossibility. I mean, you couldn't move a body unless you were next of kin, especially a veteran. But I thought I could get a little mileage out of their passion. And so I went and made a, a, a letterhead and, a, and, and stationery that said, the committee for the reburial of liver-eating Johnson showed up in <laughs> class the next day. And I said, hey, if you don't like it, then why don't you do something about it? Let's, let's go on a letter-writing campaign. And I gave them a list of everything I could think of, governors and senators and historical societies, anybody that was in Idaho, Montana, or Wyoming. And they began writing letters, passionately writing letters, so passionately writing letters that one kid, his name was Russ Gillum, he went home and he wrote a letter to one name that I had left on my list, a guy by the name of Bob Edgar from Cody, Wyoming. The only thing is he addressed it to Boz Esger in Cozy, Wyoming. <laughs> week after week, we waited for replies and we got some quite polite ones, nice for seventh grade kids to try to do something, and um, you know, we'll be rooting for you. But Bob Edgar answered his letter, and he said, listen, if you kids can get permission to disinter the body of liver-eating Johnson, I will finance and underwrite the whole uh, reburial if he can be reburied in Cody, Wyoming. Now, 
Bob Edgar had a, uh, he was a historian and an archeologist who had collected old buildings like the Bucket of Blood Saloon and Butch Cassidy's Hole of the Log Cabin and had created this place called Trail Town just outside of Cody near the Buffalo Bill Historical Center. And so that was like, it, it gave that snowball, that synergistic snowball of a little more momentum and the kids started writing more letters and then an amazing thing happened. One of my students showed up that, uh, Monday morning, he was all excited, he came into my classroom. This was in 1973. He came to my classroom and he says, Mr. Robinson, he said, I saw a movie this weekend. It just came to town, which is unusual in Lancaster, California, <laughs> to have any you know, current movie. And he says, it was by Robert Redford, it was called Jeremiah Johnson, and I think it was a movie about our mountain man, John Johnston. And I go, really? And so I went and saw it myself, and sure enough, it was based on the same character. Well, my class immediately started writing letters to Robert Redford. He's, <laughs> he was the heartthrob of every seventh grade girl <laughs> without reply. But one thing did happen, which gave that snowball another, another push, and that was that our local paper, because of the movie and because of the nature of the class, they found out about it and put an article in the local paper there in Lancaster uh, about the project. Well, it went on to the AP Press, and the LA Times found out about it and sent a reporter to Lancaster, California and interviewed my class and asked the question, did Robert Redford ever answer your letter? <laughs> and all the kids said, no, he never answered our letter. <laughs> and on the, on, on the front page of the LA Times that week <laughs> was the headline, Redford red-faced over the reburial of Jeremiah Johnson. <laughs> They'd contact Redford and he'd apologize to the LA Times. Also, NBC, Roy Neal from NBC, he was the guy that did the commentaries and all the moonshots that were in the late 60s, and so he was well known. He called and he said, hey, if you kids can get uh, permission to disinter Jeremiah Johnson, we want to have the exclusive interview with your class, and we're going to send a crew up there and get pictures of them writing letters, because if this actually happens, um, we're going to go to Cody and, and uh, send a crew up there to, to witness the reinterment, if it could happen. Then Robert Redford called my class. <laughs> Robert Redford went on a loudspeaker in my class, which you could imagine that, that pushed the snowball <laughs> and apologized. And he said, listen, if you could get permission <laughs> to rebury Jeremiah Johnson, he says, I will come and be a pallbearer and, be, and, and witness the reinterment in Cody, Wyoming. And then Western Airlines called and said, listen, if you could get permission <laughs> to disinter the body of Jeremiah Johnson and uh, rebury him in Cody, Wyoming, we will fly your class to witness the reburial. And then amazing thing happened. It was a calamity of miracles, really. I don't know what else to call it. But the United States Congress decreed in the congressional records in the spring of 1973 
that my class was the unofficial next of kin <laughs> to John Livereating Johnson. And we had permission to disinter the body of Jeremiah Johnson. My kids went and early one morning to Sawtell Cemetery, literally were there to disinter the body. We were taking his, his bones to the airport to fly them to Buildings, Montana, because it was the closest airport to Bo Cody, Wyoming. When we got this word, that the, the people in Montana were made a, a legal indictment to stop the, his bones from crossing the border because they thought he belonged in Montana, not Wyoming. <laughs> so we changed the flight to Casper, Wyoming, where Bob Edgar drove his, his old ranch pickup and, and picked up the, the remains of Liberty Johnson, put him in a basement for two weeks with an armed guard. Well a cowboy with a Colt 45 with blanks. <laughs> Jeremiah Johnson, better known as Liberating Johnson, was reinterred in Cody, Wyoming that June. My class was there, Robert Redford was there. It was the biggest funeral in the, at that time, it was the biggest recorded funeral in the history of Wyoming. But Montana threatened to, re, to, re, to dig up Jeremiah Johnson again. So we filled the hole with two ready-mix trucks of concrete. <laughs> and Jeremiah Johnson was buried one last time, period. Please welcome to the stage, Reham Ardi. So my parents actually met right here in Boise, Idaho, when my father was in the States studying, going to university. But I was born and raised in the Middle East. And we have a big British influence to our education system, so we didn't call it a period. We called it a full stop. Like, end of story, full stop. So. I was 17, grown up in Kuwait, had an amazing, privileged, super cool life. Uh, but on the morning of August 2nd, 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and my life pretty much came to a full stop right there. Whole new chapter. Um, it was really an odd sensation waking up that morning with military jets flying over the house. It was really loud and kind of a freakish thing, and I was on my bed angling, trying to look up and figure out what was happening, and my mom came in, and we just kind of looked at each other like, what? Not scary, just what the heck? And, you know, she went back to bed, and I went and got dressed. Uh, my friends and I had spent this 120-degree summer taking extra courses, trying to graduate early from high school so we, too, could come to the States and go to university. So we were off that morning to check our grades, 
before we were allowed to head off to the beach for what little meager time we had left of summer break. So I took off with my friends and we decided to stop off for some coffee on our way to get our grades. And we were just kind of chilling, trying to wake up, you know, get the caffeine buzz going. And our Lebanese friend comes rushing into the coffee shop, freaking out, hair on fire, talking about, everybody get to the store, go get non-perishable food. We need water, you need to hit to the ATM, get as much cash as you can. And we're like, dude, chill take it down what is up and he's like you don't understand we've been invaded again i'm 17 we're like whatever dude sit and he's like no listen to me and he grabs me by the arm and he pulls me outside and he turns me towards the gulf road our main drag and there are tanks rolling down the road and we're like okay <laughs> Grades forgotten. We all get back in that car and they drop me off at home. And I come inside and I'm standing outside my parents' door, like, oh, kind of possibly whimpering, freaking out just a little bit because it's a weekend. Going in there and waking up my dad for possibly a false alarm of, hey, we got invaded, like, what are the chances? Versus, we got invaded, like, what do we need to do? And thank God my mom at that point with her sonic hearing heard me and came out and said, what is happening? And I told her what they told me. And she immediately goes in there and gets dad, who, not happy, comes out. And he's all chill. And we're like, dad, seriously, something is going on. And he's all, shh, chill. So we're trying to get him convinced. And the phone rings. And it's actually my aunt here in Boise, Idaho. And she's yelling out words like invasion in Iraq and what's happening and click the phone dies. That was our last communication outside of the country. And dad, still chill. So he decides he's gonna take his tea outside to the garden like he does every morning. And I'm chasing him out there like, dad, seriously, I think this is a thing. And just then this helicopter comes up over our house and I'm sitting here looking up right into the eyes of this soldier pointing a gun down at my head with this huge Iraqi emblem on the side of this helicopter and we just froze and he looks kind of side-eyed at me and goes, calmly walk in the house now. And so I turn around and I walk in and he just stands there and about a minute later that helicopter takes off and dad comes bolting through the door. Oh, now he's freaking out about damn time. So, okay, we're good. Dad's on the same page. Mom and I got company. So off he goes to the store, off he goes to the bank, but it's too late. Everything's already shut down, shuttered windows and closed off banks. And he comes home just looking at us like, what do we do now? But the bigger thing was my mom and dad were already freaking out because my little sister was only 15 and she was in Spain with friends and we had no way of knowing what was happening with her or if she was going to be okay. We just had to trust these family friends that they would keep her safe. And on top of that, here we are, these peace-loving hippie types over here in this country where we have no idea what it takes to mobilize a military. We're like, we have allies, they'll be here, they'll help. What'll it take, like a week, two? Like, what are reservations? How do they fly here, right? No, it took months, six months, actually. And even worse than that, we had a country full of kids because in Kuwait in the summer, did I mention it's 120 degrees in the shade? 
Everyone's gone, including our military. That's why they came in August. No one was there. It's a bunch of teenagers with grandparents and servants and maybe 30% of the adults in that country. So as teenagers, you all know if you have kids or if you've been a teenager, teenagers, angst and rebellion and hormones and attitude, but add on top of that an invasion where they're trying to take away the country that you were just whining about yesterday because of the patriarchy and the religion and this chaperoning, but now it's yours and you're mad and you wanna fight. But what do you know when you're a kid, right? All we knew how to do was be really, really annoying. We would stupidly do things that our parents are still like, what were you thinking? You know, one of our favorites, all those soldiers would take over all the random police stations at, you know, different districts. And my friends would sneak across the road at midnight and call in a really thick Iraqi accent. The Americans are coming. The Americans are coming. And we'd watch these Iraqi soldiers right out of that building in their underwear. <laughs> We're so funny because it wasn't scary yet. We would do things like hold these big chanting slogan things where we would get up on our rooftops and we would shout out Arab slogans and, and yell our national anthem while throwing random crap at these soldiers down there pointing guns at us because our dumb butts didn't realize that that whizzing sound, those were bullets, not mosquitoes. We didn't know, you know, and our parents are downstairs going, get down here now. But we didn't get it. We were bulletproof bravado running around like crazy people. You know, the worst thing I ever did to my family, though, was that one time when my dad wanted to go check out my grandma, and I begged for a trip to go with him. I was so sick of being at home. And he said, okay, but you have to cover up where the stuff. We're not like that in Kuwait. Kuwait's not that kind of country. I was a jeans and t-shirt girl. You want me to put that stuff on? So sassy, I did it, whatever, hair hanging half out, but I did it. So we get in the car and off we go to my grandma's house and we get to one of the big checkpoints and the soldier, you know, stops us, papers, where are you going, what's your business? And my dad's being all polite and everything and answering all his questions and soldier leans down and gives me this look I didn't like, all sneering and kind of leerish. It says, but about her and teenage angst in overload. What? Who do you think you are? Don't talk to me like that. Who do you think you are? Get out of my country. Oh, wrong move. That gun came right past my dad's face. Bonk, 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 right in my head. Shut up, shut your mouth, woman. Don't talk to me like that. <laughs> All that did was make it worse. I started screaming, he started screaming, bonk, bonk, more hitting with the gun, more screaming until my dad threw his hands up and said, stop, please, please stop. She's crazy, like crazy. We just can't get her medication because of the war. Please don't kill her. <laughs> At this point, that was not a hard sell. This guy bought that story, no problem. So he looked at my dad and goes, yeah, she's crazy. I said, well, I'll show you crazy. And thank God he pulled that gun back out of that car and said, muzzle her and get out of my face. Needless to say, I spent the rest of that invasion grounded. <laughs> but you know, it wasn't scary to us. It was surreal. It was so bizarre that this was happening that it just didn't feel like something scary yet. It was some temporary holding pattern. But then the elite guard came and that's when things got real. That's when people started dying. That's when people got raped and beheaded and bodies thrown around as warnings and curfews and blackouts. 
And that's when it really started to sink in that this was a thing. This was like a real scary thing. And we started to accept that this might take longer than we thought it would. And we started to kind of settle down and stop being crazy with our rebellion, using it to help get people out of the country and using it to stay alive at that point when we were trying to get people out that couldn't save themselves. But really, it didn't really hit me so much until one day, and if in all honesty, if I'm really telling the truth, it didn't even register then that day, just how big this moment was, how huge my mother's terror must have been. Because that morning, I understood so much more about a decade later when I had my first child and I was holding him and that whole story came back and flooded into me to remind me that, oh my God, what she must have been going through that day, how it feels to be at the mercy of madmen and governments and warmongers when you can't even protect your own kids. She came into my room that morning and she sat on the bed and she held my hand. And she looked at me and she said, if they come in here, I'll kill you myself. I need you to understand that. And then she squeezed my hand and she walked out. And I sat there for minutes just thinking, what just happened and what did she just say? And it was at that moment when it all sunk in completely and I felt my childhood totally ending, full stop. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, Marnie Ellis, and me, Jody Eichelberger. We receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Group Real Estate, and the period show sponsor, the Idaho Conservation League. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was Phyllis Tincher. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. <laughs>